Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harney's Take 10 podcast. My name is Andrew Johnston. I'm a partner in the Hong Kong office, and I'm very, very pleased indeed to welcome two highly distinguished guests to speak to me today. Uh, first of all, from his veranda, accompanied by cicadas in the BVI, we have our global co-head of disputes, Peter Ferrer. Hello, Peter. Hello, Andrew. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. And joining me also from Hong Kong, we have counsel in our Hong Kong office and uh, expert in all things arbitration-related in Asia. Andrew Chin. Andrew, hello. Hello, AJ. And definitely very privileged to be joining this podcast today. Excellent. Well, perhaps uh, giving a hint away there, today we're actually going to focus on arbitration as opposed to litigation, and uh, in particular, the use of arbitration in offshore disputes. Now, first of all, we are very used as BVI and Cayman practitioners to going to court and having most of our disputes resolved in the court. But at the same time, each of the three of us have practiced for a long part of our careers onshore. And I'm sure we all have seen a growing trend over the years in the UK and Hong Kong towards resolving disputes by way of arbitration. Now, Peter, is there a trend that's also coming in in offshore disputes? Um, I think there is, actually. I mean, BVI is known to be a company and corporation jurisdiction. So a large number of our cases that the court deals with are unfair prejudice petitions, shareholder disputes, and invariably there will be a shareholders agreement. And you'll often find that the shareholders agreement itself will have an arbitration clause, um, whether it be BVI or English law or, or, or some other governing law and institution. And those disputes are, are certainly on the rise at the moment. There's an increase in shareholder disputes, whether it be due to COVID-related issues in terms of pressure for the funding, whether there be issues in relation to ownership where the individuals who've set up the companies have passed away. And so there's a sort of an inheritance issue in terms of who is going to take over companies. So so certainly in terms of pure company work and shareholder disputes, that is something I think that we, we are seeing an increase in. And Andrew, turning to you for one second, could you tell me why you think that might be? Is this just following trends or is it is there something more at play here? Um, I think if you look at the typical shareholder disputes, they all are often turn very ugly. And usually one side will be an Asian party. And as Asians, we would typically not want to wash our dirty linen in public. So the arbitration has this advantage whereby it's private and confidential. So parties can trash out whatever they want in a more private setting. I think this is one of the main considerations why you see a lot of joint venture disputes go to arbitration. Another key factor is really the opportunity to choose your own arbitrator. Unlike in court, you can't choose your judge, but in arbitration, you can choose your own arbitrator. I'm by no means suggesting that this person will be biased or lack impartiality. It's just that in a cross-cultural setting, what you want to see is someone who understands what you think, what you feel. So when you write a particular piece of correspondence, you want to feel that there's some empathy on the part of the tribe. So in most joint venture cases, you see provisions for three-man arbitrators so that each side can choose an arbitrator that is most culturally suited for his or her side of the dispute. So that what you get is an arbitral tribunal that both parties feel represent their interests. So if you do decide then to insert an arbitration clause in your contract for all the reasons that you said you might, Andrew, Peter, what sort of considerations are at play when it comes to choosing the law and the seat of that arbitration for offshore disputes? 
disputes? I think the key point is really enforcement. If parties are going to go to arbitration, they want to have the certainty that when they get their award, that they're going to be able to transfer that award and enforce it easily in jurisdictions where they can find assets and uh, have it recognised across across borders. Having said that, um, there are lots of reasons why people choose a particular jurisdiction. When parties are are in the first flush of their um, their court in and they want to uh, go into a business relationship, they don't often think about. Can you hear the cars and dogs in the background? Hang on a second. Having adverted to the uh, romantic sounds of cicadas, uh, we're in fact disturbed by the sounds of a pack of dogs. <laughs> a pack of dogs. My, my pack of dogs. <laughs> They've probably seen a rat in the garden or something. Um, yes, so <laughs> where were we? Having said that it's ease of enforcement, there are lots of reasons why a particular party wishes to choose a venue or a jurisdiction. And, and sometimes it's, it's whether or not when you're first going out into the deal, nobody really thinks that the deal is going to go sour. And it may be that the UBO says, well, I, I quite like a trip to Paris if things go wrong, or I quite like a trip to the BVI. There are lots of different reasons why parties choose their venue but but the main reason I think is ease of enforcement and then the second is what sort of procedural rules will apply how easy is it for, for challenges to be made if the arbitrator goes wrong some parties want to have a, a final resolution with no oversight for the court some parties want to say well we want to have the backstop so that if there's a point of law where the, the arbitrators get it wrong we have the option to appeal so there are there are lots of different factors and what is often the case is that most legal advisors will have a chart where they'll look at the different jurisdictions and they'll say well, if we go to Sweden, we'll get X. If we go to Paris, we'll have Y. If we go to New York, it'll be this. If we go to England, it should be you know a certain certain type of regime. And then they'll weigh the factors, and then those will be weighed into the mix as to which venue they wish to have. We know that you know, as part of that decision, the infrastructure of, of arbitration in London and, and Hong Kong and, and New York and Paris and lots of other places is highly developed, and it's very you know there's a huge body of arbitrators and and practitioners. Peter, could you just explain to me what the, that infrastructure looks like in the BVI? So the BVI was slightly later to the game than other jurisdictions. There had been a, an old Arbitration Act back in, I think, 1975, which had followed an old pre-1996 English Act, pretty much the letter. When they decided in early sort of 2011, 2012, to really support arbitration in the BVI, they looked at what sort of model they ought to adopt. And they adopted the UNCITRAL model law and arbitration. But then they also looked at England and said, well, do, do we want to have the same sort of supervision that an English court would have. So in England under the 1996 Act, you've got jurisdiction under Section 67, serious irregularity under Section 68, and points of law under Section 69. And, and they decided, well, they, they didn't really want to follow English law to the letter. So, so those particular provisions are included in a Schedule 2, which, which in, in the BVI you have to opt into in your arbitration clause. Otherwise, you end up having very minimal court supervision in relation to, to arbitrations. So they were trying to sort of mix the models that you have in Sweden, France and England and try and come up with a, a very bespoke system which the parties when they're choosing their arbitration venue and clause can can choose how much court supervision they, they wish to have. The BVI government also looked around at particularly Singapore and saw that Maxwell Chambers you know, huge investment that the Singapore uh, government had put in and wanted to try and emulate that so they spent considerable sums in, in setting up a physical venue so there is a BVI IAC that has a uh, registrar, a secretary, it has 
the full full infrastructure for a for an institution. It has you know physical rooms, excellent facilities. In fact, for those who, who wish to come to the BVI, and they're really trying to market to the South American, the LATAM, the American market in terms of access to the BVI. But they've obviously you don't have to physically be in the BVI to have BVI arbitration. But in terms of physical infrastructure, there, there's been a lot of investment in that. Um, and there are visa waivers as well for arbitration in BVI, aren't there? There are, yes. So you don't need work permits. Um, you can come and go. Unlike if you were a, bar- a barrister or a lawyer working in court, you'd have to get a work permit. So they've they've really tried to sort of make it as pro arbitration as possible. And Andrew, from a from an Asian perspective, I mean, you mentioned earlier, and it was a very good point that an awful lot of parties who use uh, the BVI courts in particular are based in Asia. What sort of considerations might Asian based parties have when choosing where and when and how to arbitrate? Um, I guess for Asian parties, first thing they'll look at is whether you have a good arbitration infrastructure. And if you wanted to arbitrate, you want to have also to have the venue of arbitration somewhere close to you. And with respect to good Asian infrastructure, apart from the BVI in the Caribbean, the leading seat in Asia would undoubtedly be Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea. And if one looks at the latest Queen Mary survey on international arbitration, you see that Singapore is tied with London as the most preferred seat, garnering 54% of the votes from all participants. And I must say that the Queen Mary survey is the gold standard when it comes to surveys for what international arbitration participants feel about the process. And Hong Kong just comes in a close second at around 50%. So there is a growing trend towards choosing Asian seats as the seat of arbitration for dispute. And another factor that you would definitely want to look at is how good the infrastructure is. And you want an arbitration infrastructure where there's modern legislation that follows the international model law. You also want to look at the judiciary. Do they have record of setting aside awards or are they pro-enforcement? You also want to look at the general business environment in particular as to whether there is an impetus and a recognition of arbitration as a legitimate mode of dispute resolution. So basically, it is a holistic view of how well that particular jurisdiction can serve the users of arbitration. And quite amazingly, in recent years, you actually see um, CTEC coming to the forefront when it comes to a choice of an arbitral institution. The latest Queen Mary survey that I mentioned lists CTEC as the number five among all the arbitral institutions surveyed as to what users would choose. So I think this is the first time that CTEC actually came onto the radar as a top five. And this is a very good acknowledgement of the development of Asian arbitration in general. It's fascinating. So, I mean, your Asian-based clients, Andrew, could choose to arbitrate in Hong Kong with a BVI dispute resolution subject to BVI law. Um, and so they wouldn't have to go anywhere. Uh, yes, of course. In Hong Kong, we have one of the most flexible arbitration regimes in the world. And that is definitely something that's possible. What usually happens when you arbitrate a dispute in Hong Kong that is governed by BVI or Cayman law is that there's a traditional approach that's usually applied. And that is you would invite experts who are specialized in BVI or Cayman law to give evidence to the tribunal on how that uh, system of law applies to the facts of the case. And then the tribunal would then decide the Way. But I do hear a 
growing anecdotal trend, even though arbitrations are just confidential, but people in the arbitration community discuss trends from time to time, is that there is a growing trend that arbitrators would much rather prefer questions of foreign law to be made by way of submissions from lawyers instead of by way of expert evidence. This greatly saves time and cost. So you see a scenario nowadays whereby even though an arbitration may be seated in Hong Kong, it may be run by Hong Kong lawyers, but uh, they would then also get BVI or Cayman Council on board as co-counsel for the entire arbitration. So how do you ensure that the arbitral tribunal when faced with a question of foreign law decides in the most appropriate way? And that is usually in the three-man tribunal who would get the chair who would be either specialized in legal or Cayman law or one of the arbitrators would be specialized. So that particular arbitrator or the tribunal, if they are so specialized, they can then be in a much more qualified position to decide on questions of BVL Cayman law. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really, really wanted to ask Peter, who who is um, a polyglot and very experienced in the, in the Russian market about his experience there, but I'm afraid that we've run out of time today. So perhaps I, I can invite you both to come back and join me again on a, on a later podcast where we can talk about perhaps Russian arbitration and other enforcement and, and interim measures issues. Sounds like a good idea. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's episode of Take 10. And do please subscribe if you've enjoyed listening to this. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you to the next episode.